been in a series these last several weeks, taking the words of Paul to young Pastor Timothy as our theme, as we've talked about the training ground of life. So I'm just going to remind us of these words before we dive in this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Paul continues and says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So we've talked about a lot of different things. A lot of different spiritual disciplines, but today we're going to talk about one that doesn't get talked about nearly enough. And so when I mention the word fasting, what comes to your mind? What do you think of? Not eating, being hungry. So many of us will think about legalism and how we're not required to live under the law. Jesus made this quite clear. Some might think of religious extremism. Some might think that there is no way I could do that, and I actually have no desire to do that. But did you know that fasting is mentioned more in the Bible than what we saw take place a few moments ago? That fasting is mentioned more in the Bible than even baptism is mentioned? I I didn't know that until this week. In in, in fact, in our series called Training Ground, we're we're learning about some of these spiritual disciplines. And guess which one is the most misunderstood? It's fasting. Guess which one makes the most people uncomfortable? It's fasting. Uh, It's the most ignored because it's the most understood. It's the most feared because it's the most misunderstood. And I'd like to challenge us this morning, right here at the start, by asking one very simple but important question. Why do we engage in spiritual disciplines? Why why do we do that? Why are we given these spiritual disciplines? Why, why, Why do we follow in this way? And if the answer that that comes to your mind, and you have to answer this question for yourself, just like I do, if the answer that comes to your mind to the question of why do we engage in the spiritual disciplines is anything less than or different than because we love Jesus and we long to know him and become more like him, then we probably need to rethink some of those things. It's important to remember that what we're talking about is not a list of rules and requirements. This is not about what we do to try and make God happy. Are you a Christian this morning? If you are a Christian, then the Bible says that you are the beloved of God. He loves you. He accepts you this morning. You are dear to Him. And Some of us just need to let that sink in for a little bit first. That you are loved by your heavenly Father this morning. That no matter how you felt this morning when you woke up, no matter what it was like getting out of the house this morning, you are loved by a God in heaven. You are the beloved 
of God. And the spiritual disciplines are a gift to us because they allow us to get to know our Heavenly Father in a far more intimate way. We are every single day of our lives learning who He is, how we can be more like Him. We never outgrow our need for discipline, so we discipline ourselves to grow in the grace as we follow Him. And last week, we talked about, if I'm just going to put my cards on the table, we talked about what I believe is the single most important spiritual discipline, the discipline of Bible intake. Because I believe when Bible intake is real in your life and we are pursuing God through reading of His Word, memorization of His Word, study of His Word, I believe when we do that, these other things will flow out of this. That's how we learn about these things. And so Bible intake is sort of, it's at the base, it's the ground of what we do. Um, the discipline of Bible intake. We learned together last week about the perfection of God's Word and how He reveals Himself to us through His Word. And we're challenged in the area of Bible intake. We're disciples, but we're inadequate disciples if we're not learning from His Word on a daily basis. And, and there's some resources out, and I'll mention this again at the end of the service. There's some resources out on the desk in the lobby that will help you in this regard. If you need help with knowing how or what to read on a daily basis out of your copy of God's Word, there's some resources out there that I would just encourage you to utilize that will, I think, be a help to you. Let's pray as we dive into our topic today, as we're challenged today in the area of fasting. Heavenly Father, just be with us as we open your word together. Would you speak clearly to us? Would you challenge us and encourage us? God, we're here because we love you. And we want to be more like your son, Jesus. Thank you for giving us these tools that you are using in our life to make us more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to give you a couple facts about fasting, and then we're going to look at two truths about fasting. So here are some fasting facts. Fasting, fact number one, fasting is abstaining from one thing for a special spiritual purpose. That is a, a, the definition of fasting. In the Bible, fasting is always about food. Now I know we say we can fast from different things, and I'm not arguing that. All right, don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying in the Bible, when we read of a fast, we read about fasting from food. So fasting is abstaining from something you need. And if we're talking about a biblical fast, what do you need that you're fasting from? Not a trick question. It's food. Do you need food? Yes, you do need food. You need sustenance. Okay, so fasting is abstaining from something you need in order to obtain or pursue something you need even more. What could you possibly need even more than food? There are many different reasons and seasons, and we're going to talk about the seasons and reasons for fasting in a little bit, but they all lead in one very common direction, your need. When we fast, it is because of a need that we all have or were born with. So what could we need more than food? Because you need food. You need sustenance. You need nutrition. You may not need all of the things that we commonly call food, okay? There's some junk out there, and chances are you go home and open up your pantry. You're going to find some things in there that you don't need. Am I right? Right? If you stop by the grocery store on the way home, 
Because you, you need an ingredient that you forgot for Sunday lunch. When you are walking up and down the aisles of the grocery store, you are going to see many things in the grocery store that you do not need. In fact, would not be very, very good for you at all. There's junk in there. But you need good things to fuel your physical body. What do you need more than that? Beloved, we sacrifice or abstain from food, the thing we need, in order to gain or pursue something we need even more. And for the follower of Jesus, the thing we need even more than physical food is communion with our Heavenly Father. So fasting then is letting go of one thing for a season to pursue a deeper need. Fasting, fact number two, is not only abstaining from food. Fasting is not only abstaining from food. The first statement was that fasting in the Bible was always about food. In the Bible, it's always about food. The second statement is that fasting is not only about abstaining from food. And what we mean by this, and you can fast from other things as well, but we're dealing with, the, the, again, the biblical model this morning. In Scripture, my observation is this, and I think you'll see this with me in a little bit. Nearly every instance that I have read in the Bible where fasting is mentioned, it is combined with something else. And most commonly, we read about fasting and what? You stay filling in for me. Fasting and prayer. You read about fasting and weeping, fasting and other things. So fasting is not only about abstaining from food. Fasting without one of these other disciplines is not fasting. It is starvation. It's, it's a diet. Fasting is more than just not eating. Fasting is not eating in order to pursue something else. And if you take the pursuit of something else away, all you have is, I'm not eating food. Okay? The, the, the second part of that is so very important. Third fact, fasting is abstaining from food for a special spiritual purpose. In other words, the pursuit matters here. The pursuit of God matters a great deal. There, there must be a for in the equation. We are fasting for a special spiritual purpose. Last fact before we survey some scripture together, and we're going to read a lot of scripture this morning. In fact, we're going to survey a lot from the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is going to be more like a Bible study in our time together uh, than it might normally be. But fasting is, last fact, fasting is a normal and expected part of the Christian life. Did you know that? Fasting is a normal and expected part of the life of a follower of Jesus. We're going to see later on this morning, but the assumption is made that we are people who, as followers of Jesus, fast. It's a given that we are people who fast. So bear this in mind and keep an open mind as we look together in God's Word this morning. I told you two truths. Here's the first truth. Okay, We've looked at some facts. Here's the first truth. Fasting should be done by faithful followers of Jesus so that we can express our desire for Christ, and increase our dependency on Him. Fasting should be done by faithful followers of Jesus so that they, so that we can express our desire for Christ and increase our dependency on Him. I want you to notice as I read these passages this morning, and I told you there's a lot of them, whether you turn to them or not, they'll be on the screen. I want you to notice with me where fasting is combined with something else in these scriptures. So first we look at Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 to 23. 
Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. So fasting can be used to deepen our prayer life. It was here in the book of Ezra to deepen their prayer life. Fasting can also be used to seek direction. Judges chapter 20 verses 26 and 27. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until the evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord for the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. So fasting can be used when we need to seek direction from God. That's what it was being used for here in the book of Judges. Fasting can be used to seek deliverance. 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 2 through 4. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with some of the Meonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom. From beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. And Judah assembled to seek, the, to seek help from the Lord from all of the cities of Judah that came to seek the Lord. So it can be used to seek deliverance from God, from an enemy or situation. Daniel chapter 9, we see that fasting can be used to seek mercy. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from the commandments and rules. So fasting can be used to seek the mercy of God when we or others have sinned. 2 Samuel chapter 1, we see that fasting can be used to express grief. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them in verse 11. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. They're sad. They had grief. And so they expressed it through They're fasting. Joel chapter 2 shows us that fasting can be used to express repentance. And yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. When we fast... We are expressing our desire and our desire for and our dependence on Christ Jesus. Prayer, direction, mercy, repentance, grief, all aimed in a very particular direction. The Christian does not fast and seek wisdom from a friend. You think about this. If you have ever fasted as a follower of Jesus, then chances are, if you've done it correctly, you have not fasted and then sought counsel from a friend. You did not fast 
just to say you were sorry to someone that you hurt their feelings. Fasting is always done for the believer in the direction of our heavenly Father. It's all aimed somewhere. We don't fast from food and seek mercy from our boss at work. We fast in order to seek communion with our Father. The act of fasting is a living statement of dependence and desire upon our Heavenly Father. Do you know uh, uh, what it is impossible for you to be when you're fasting? Think about this. Do you know what attitude it is impossible for us to have when we are fasting? It is impossible for us to have an attitude of pride when we are fasting. That alone should cause me to fast before my heavenly Father. You cannot be proud and truly fast because fasting is about the heart, the declaration that we need you, Father. We can't. We need. That's why it's always combined in the scriptures with crying out with worship, with prayer. It's the seeking of the Father's heart and our statement that we need Him even more than we need daily physical food to sustain our bodies. Fasting is about expressing our desire and our dependence on Jesus. The first truth, fasting should be done by faithful followers of Jesus so that we can express our desire for Christ and increase our dependency upon Him. Second truth, fasting teaches faithful followers of Jesus these two things. Things are not as they should be and things are not as they will be. Fasting teaches us and reminds us that things are not as they should be and not as they will be. I want to read to you just fasting in the Old Testament. We're going to look at some more scripture here. And I want you to see this second truth played out in a couple of different ways. Leviticus chapter 16 verse 29 It shall be a statute to you. And remember, this is being spoken to the nation of Israel. Okay, God is giving them their law. And he says, It shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves, or fast, and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. This is, now somebody help me, what is this day called now? Day of, day of atonement or Yom Kippur, okay? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, why did the followers of God in the Old Testament fast and pray on the Day of Atonement? Because of sin. God wants to see that we take our sin seriously, that we're burdened by our own personal and corporate sin. God wants us to hate our sin, to mourn over our sin. If you read the whole chapter of Leviticus chapter 16, which is a fascinating chapter in God's word, uh, you will see the practice surrounding the day of atonement for the nation of Israel. So let me just, let me summarize for you. The high priest would choose two goats, okay? Maybe you're familiar with this, but he would choose two goats. Uh, let, let's, let's, let's be creative here and call them goat number one and, and goat number two. Very good. Okay, you're, you're, you're with me, okay? Goat number one and goat number two. Goat number one over here, uh, goat number one, atone for the people's sins. 
Now, what would happen is that that simply means that the high priest uh, would see that goat number one would be put to death and sacrificed to atone for or cover over the people's sins. It's not good to be goat number one. Right? If you are a goat in the flock, in the village, do you want to be goat number one or goat number two? Not so fast. Remember, there are two goats. The priest would then go to goat number two, and he would lay his hands on the head of goat number two. And then someone had the job of taking goat number two out into the wilderness. Okay, this goat became known as the scapegoat. Good. Got some Bible students in here. I love it. So goat number two is the scapegoat. He now has the sins of the people that are being led out into the wilderness. They're not going to come back. Except for the fact that you have to remember the goat grew up in the village. The goat was fed in the village. There were probably some kids that came by and petted the goat. Maybe threw rocks at the goat. I don't know what kind of kids they were. But after the goat was led out into the wilderness, do you know what would happen sometimes, they say? That the goat, who all of the sins of the people had been placed upon, would wander back into the village. Now that is a bad picture, isn't it? So what began to happen on the Day of Atonement, we read, is that goat number one is sacrificed, the blood of the goat atones for the people and their sins for one year. Goat number two was led out into the wilderness, and then somebody would follow it out there and would push it off a cliff because they were so scared of their sins following them back into camp. Doesn't that make you thankful for Jesus? Doesn't it make you thankful that we have a Savior who once for all atoned for, covered our sins, covered our sins, but also delivered us from our sins, never for them to come back. Day of Atonement, they fasted in the Old Testament because of this, because of sin. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 18 and 19 says, this is an interesting passage. It says, And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth. So there's a different fast on the fourth month, the fifth month, and the seventh month, and the tenth month. Saying these fasts that you guys are currently doing, here's what's going to happen to them. They shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. These fasts right here are not like the day of atonement fast that was commanded by the Lord. These fasts were started to serve the people. You go study, uh, go read some commentaries surrounding Zechariah uh, eight nineteen, and you'll find out that these fasts uh, uh, were instituted to remind the people of the sieges of. Jerusalem, the enslavement of her people, they were painful, painful reminders of the fact that they lived in a broken and hurtful world. But the second half of that passage says, but the word of the Lord came to the prophet to tell him that someday these fasts of brokenness would be seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. 
Daniel chapter 10, verse 2 says, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Daniel mourned and fasted to seek the hand of God on his life in this particular season. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. This is very, very important. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He went into his own house and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said, do you remember this? What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. And the king said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David fasted and wept, seeking the healing hand of God on the life of his child. There's so many other passages that we could read about in the Old Testament about fasting, but let's jump forward to the New Testament. Acts chapter 27, verse 9. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. It's talking about the Day of Atonement fast. Paul advised them. So we see fasting continue throughout the New Testament. Luke chapter 2. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Anna fasted, prayed, worshiped as she sought who? The Messiah, Jesus, to come. Matthew chapter 4, we've talked about this passage already. You see Jesus being led out into the Judean wilderness to fast and seek the Lord, to seek the Father as he's about to begin his very public ministry where he's tempted by the enemy. Go to Acts chapter 13 and you see uh, in verse 2 it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the whole point is this. From the beginning to the end, we see fasting as a normative part of the life of followers of God. Not as a rule and requirement anymore, but as an opportunity and an invitation. Remember, there were two truths. The first truth had to do with dependence and desire. The second truth had to do with reminding us that things are not as they should be and not as they one day will be. I want to finish with Jesus' teaching on fasting very, very briefly. If you want to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6 and then also turn to Matthew chapter 9. Just put your finger there. We're going to read these two passages together and just see what Jesus had to say as a culmination, what I really think may be the most important passage in the Bible on fasting here in a moment. Matthew chapter 6. Well, let's start with verse 16. And Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. What's the reward? Everybody knew they were fasting. Oh, look how spiritual they are. Look how elite they are as followers of Jesus because they're hungry. They have this face to let everybody know. 
that they're hungry and they're fasting. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you fast, again, Jesus expecting it, saying this is the normal part of the Christian experience, and the normal part of the experience of those who are trying to live and pursue God. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And flip over to Matthew chapter 9. And let's see this. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. A very important passage. Then the disciples of John came to him. John who? John the Baptist. The disciples of John the Baptist came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So the story is that the disciples of John the Baptist are friends. In fact, some of the followers of Jesus had been followers of John the Baptist. And so they come to these guys that they used to do life with and hang out with and work with and were in business with. They're all sort of in the same circle, orbiting around each other and, and coming into contact with each other. And so the disciples of John the Baptist, followers of John the Baptist, they come to Jesus and they say, why are we fasting and by the way, this other group of people who are very, very religious, the Pharisees, they are fasting, but you guys are never fasting. What's up with that? Why do we fast? Why do these other people, even though they get it wrong all the time, they're sincere in what they believe, the Pharisees, sometimes. Why are they fasting? Why are we fasting? We're sincere, but you guys are never fasting. How is it that the Messiah, if, if you're the Messiah and these people are following after you, how is it that we seem to be more devoted in our faith than you guys, than the followers of the Messiah? And here's what Jesus said. This is what's so important. He said, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will Fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so that both are preserved. Who's the groom? I'm going to ask that again. We need, to say, we need to be able to answer this with some authority here. Jesus is teaching us this morning. And we can't learn the lesson unless we understand who the people in the story are. Who's the groom? Jesus is the groom. When is he taken away? He's taken away at his crucifixion. He's taken away after his ascension. And Jesus is pointing to them. He's not just teaching the disciples of John. He's teaching his disciples as well. And he's pointing to a not so distant future for the disciples when Jesus will go back to the Father. In other words, what he's saying is for every Christian, for every follower of Jesus, for every true lover of the Father, there is a longing there is within us, for every follower of Jesus, there is an ache within us. In us, the Old Testament and the New Testament point to this, that things are not as they should be. Why did there have to be a day of atonement in the Old Testament? Because things are not as they should be. Because there's a sin problem. There's a brokenness problem. 
I don't have to remind you of that. You go out into the world as soon as you leave here and you see it everywhere. But guess what? Before you get up from your seat, you and I, we sense it within ourselves. The same sin that's out there is in here and entangling us. Things are not as they should be. But what Jesus is echoing here with this teaching from Matthew chapter 9 is that things are not as they one day will be. We fast now to express longing. We, ex- we fast to express the ache within our souls for that heavenly country that someday for the follower of Jesus where we will be with him and see him as he is. Things are not as they should be. We hunger now for justice and thirst for righteousness. And we look toward the days when some of the closing words of Scripture, how can you not love this? Go there. Go to the, go to the end. Go all the way to the end of Revelation with me. You just got to see it. Look at, verse, look at chapter 21. Jesus has just told his disciples, the first illustration he used was of a wedding party. And he says, everybody parties when the bridegroom is there. There's reason for celebration when the groom is in the room. Right? You want to mourn, you want to fast, you do that when the groom is gone, when you're looking forward to seeing him again. The second two illustrations he gives are about a patch being sewn on worn out clothing and about old wineskins and new wine, saying those two things don't mix why? He's saying the old and the new don't mix. I didn't come just to reform the old. Jesus is saying to his followers, I came to do something brand new in your midst. To make a whole brand new way. The old things are done. Now watch, watch this in, in chapter 21 of Revelation. We'll end right here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Isn't it amazing? just blows my mind that the guy who is pinning this was sitting with Jesus years earlier, listening to Jesus teach about fasting and teach about old wineskins and new wineskins, teaching about the bridegroom and, and, and mourning and looking forward to seeing him again. And now John, as an old man, is pinning these words. And he says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, here it is, gang. This is amazing. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In other words, the groom will be in the room. And there will be no more need for fasting. It will not serve a purpose of longing anymore because the longing of your heart, the ache of your heart for justice and love and intimacy with God will be fully and finally answered in this day. But it won't be Until then, so he says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Why will we not need to fast? Because look what he says. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 
new wineskins for the new wine of the gospel, the new covenant, where Jesus has become the one who atoned for all. But until then, we fast because we long for him. We fast because we ache for someone that we have actually never seen with our physical eyes, but we have sensed in our spirit. We fast because we long for him. The new wine of the gospel calls for a new type of fasting, one in which we rest in the complete work of Jesus with our whole selves, remembering that someday we will be with him. And as a follower of Jesus, let me just end with this very, very practical piece of information. When you find, when you encounter those days, those moments, those seasons where nothing seems to satisfy, consider that maybe as an invitation. The Holy Spirit who is calling you, inviting you into deeper communion with him, and oftentimes that is best expressed from us in the form of a fast before him. Why do we fast? It increases our dependence on Jesus and it expresses our longing for him, trusting in the complete work that he has already accomplished. Can I pray for us? Heads bowed, eyes closed all across the room. Man, what a day to begin our time together celebrating new life, baptism. What a day to be able to take a subject that's often misunderstood, confusing, and feared and look at the scriptures all throughout Old Testament and New and see that even this subject is there to point us to our longing for Jesus and our dependence upon him. Can I just encourage some of us in the room this morning, you may be here and you have a longing in your soul that you have not even been able to put your finger on and figure out what you're longing for. I'd just like to save you some time. You're longing for Jesus, for wholeness that can only be found in him, the peace that you're looking for in your life. It is only found in Jesus and what he has done for you. So this morning, whatever it looks like for you to be obedient and take over all of us, that next step of obedience, it, it, it may be submitting this morning to the longing. Come down front and just say, I, I, I need Jesus and we'll, we'll help you with the rest. We'll walk you to Jesus. For some this morning, I'm almost 100% certain that there are those of us in the room that watched believers follow in baptism this morning. And we're believers as well, but maybe it's been 20, 30, 40 years. If we've never followed in baptism, can I just encourage you this morning? That might be your very next step of obedience to the Father. 
It might be joining this fellowship. It might be fasting from something. Whatever it is. Can I just encourage you? Just be honest with God. Tell him you need help figuring out what your next step of obedience to him is. And I promise you this. He will be gracious to you as he has been thus far. If you need to come and get on these steps and pray before him, then this space is open for you to do business with the Lord. If you need to stay seated as the rest of us stand and sing, then you have the space and the freedom to do that, to be obedient to the Lord and seek his face in these moments. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love your son, Jesus. We depend on him. We long for him. We look around the world and we look in our own souls and we express that things are not as they should be. There is a mind-boggling brokenness within each one of us. So we look to you and we express our longing for you. In the good and the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. God's people said together, amen. Will you stand?